realized you were dealing with anxiety and when did you realize it was something that you wanted to get in front of? <clears throat> I've been dealing with anxiety literally my whole life. I didn't realize what anxiety was though until 2010. Uh, 2010, I had just gotten fired from radio for the fourth time and I was like 30, 31 I think, maybe, maybe 30, 30, 31 years old and I had just moved back with my mother in South Carolina because you know I was living here in Jersey and I had my, 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 at the time she was just my girlfriend but now my wife and my, our first daughter. So I had to move back in with my mom with a, with a two year old and I'm like 31, 32 years old, you know? And I remember driving down Highway 52, no, was it 52? No, um, I-26 in, in South Carolina and I was going from Mount's Corner to Orangeburg because Lil Duvall had a, a comedy show that night and I was with my cousin and um, I remember just like having that same feeling that I always have. Like I'm, like I'm having a heart attack, you know, heart palpitations, crazy and I'm like, man, this is the one. Like, cause my whole life I would always like run to the emergency room cause I'd be having these, these, these chest pains and I would always feel like I was having a heart attack. Even though I don't really know what a heart attack feels like, but in my mind, I'm like, oh, this is what, I'm having a heart attack. So I was like, man, just, yo, I remember taking some deep breaths and like, God, just let me get through the night. I'm gonna go to the doctor tomorrow. So I ended up going to the doctor the next day. The doctor told me the same thing he always tells me, like, yo, you have an athlete's heart. Your heart is perfectly fine. It's perfectly healthy. Describe the symptoms to me. I described the symptoms, tightening of the chest, shortness of breath, you know, felt like my crazy heart palpitations. And the doctor was like, it sounds like you had a panic attack. And he was like, yo, you suffer from anxiety? And I was like, not that I know of, you know? And he was like, is there anything stressing you out? And I'm like, uh, yeah, you know what I'm saying? I'm, I just got five for the fourth time. I'm back at home living with my, with my mom at 31, 32 years old. My daughter's two. I'm collecting unemployment checks. You know, I had other things going on, like this, this artist I was working with, you know, we had got him a, a record deal and he was tripping. So it was just all, it just seemed like the, the sky was falling, basically, you know? So when he said that to me, I'm like, oh shoot, maybe I do deal with anxiety because these are symptoms that I had had throughout my whole life. Like that wasn't the first time I felt those feelings. That wasn't the first time I rushed to a doctor or rushed to an emergency room thinking that I was having a heart attack. It's just that any other time they could point to something else. I remember when Pimp C died. The day Pimp C died, I remember it was December 4th. I don't exactly remember the year. I think maybe 06, 07. And um, I just when I was doing radio with, with Wendy Williams. I was our co-host. And I was supposed to fly out that next morning to go to South Carolina. I remember that night same feeling. All I kept thinking about all day was Pimp C dying, yo. And at the time, nobody knew why he died. So people were saying different things like, oh, he had a heart attack, this and that. All day long, you could not tell me I was not about to die of a heart attack like Pimp C. Literally yeah. all day. To the point to where that night, even though I had to fly out in a few hours, I gotta go to the hospital. Went to the emergency room. Doctor's like checking my heart. He's like, yo, your heart is fine. He was like, yo, you know, did you, did you drink some caffeine today? Did you have an energy drink? And I'm like, oh, shoot. I did have a Red Bull earlier today. So I could always point to something else right, right. for the reason I was having those feelings, you know, those anxiety attacks, those panic attacks. I didn't know what they were prior right. to 2010. So back then I was just like, okay, that was the energy drink that did that. But no, I was having an anxiety attack, a panic attack, because I thought I was going to die just like Pimp C died, you know, just randomly having a heart attack. They're going to find me in a room somewhere. That's, that's the way my brain works. And I think that's what anxiety is. Anxiety is worrying about things that are really out of your control. It can right. be the most irrational things, but that's just how my brain works. If I see something on television, I'm gonna think that automatically is gonna happen to me. You know, I remember in Austin, Texas, when the guy was sending, you know, the, the different FedEx packages were coming to people's doors and they were blowing up. And he I'm got like, nervous. Oh, I told my wife, don't <laughs> check no packages, <laughs> nothing. Man. And then, you know, that's, that's the day you pull up to the house and Amazon then sent mad Everything, stuff to right? your crib. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you're like, oh my God. Yeah. And it's just your wife ordering Zara. Right, right. You know? So let's talk about how dealing with a, a therapist has changed your life and, and impacted how you move or live day to day. Mm. <clears throat> well, 2010, I get diagnosed with anxiety. When the doctor says to me, you know, is anything stressing you out? Once again, I can point to, well, I'm unemployed. Um, I'm collecting unemployment checks. It's the fourth time I've been fired. All I gotta do is get another job, I'll be fine. That's literally how I dismissed it in my brain. The next job I get was The Breakfast Club. 
you know, 2010, November 2010. Moved back to New York. I'm, I'm, you know, doing the Breakfast Club. Okay. Three, four years later, five years later, massive success, right? Nationally syndicated radio show. We on in all these markets. You know, I'm making more money than I've ever made in my life. Like, life is supposed to be good, right? Why am I still having panic attacks? You know, why I'm still having anxiety attacks. Don't get me wrong, my mouth is reckless. So, yes, I've been almost jumped in front of the radio station. Yes, dudes have tried to attack me across the street at the pharmacy. Yes, you always got to keep your head on a swivel. Mm -hmm. But, yo, that's the hood, right? Mm -hmm. That's just life. Yeah, when, you, when you grow up in a certain environment, you're used to, it. You're used to that. So that, that's regular. Yeah. But I'm talking about when I'm laying in the house and, you know, the wind is blowing real hard and I feel like they about to, the whole house is about to blow away. You know what I mean? Like just stupid, irrational thoughts that don't have anything to do with anything. Like why do I keep thinking about these things? And what made me start going to see a therapist was actually through a moment of peace. You know, I was in uh, Anguilla, which is like my favorite spot to go vacation. I got all my family, all my friends, and I'm just sitting by the pool getting a haircut. And I just had like this serenity come over me, like this calmness, like, Hakuna Matata means yeah. no worries. But in my mind, I'm like, I, how do I get this feeling all the time? I'm like, it's not like I can vacation every day. Mm -hmm. if, if I could, I would, but I can't. We got to get back to work. I remember my wife just saying to me, like, yo, just go see a therapist. Simple as that. And I had been flirting with the idea for a couple years, talking to people that I respect. And, you know, I, what's crazy is most successful people that I know have a therapist, you know what I'm saying? They deal with some type of therapy in some way, shape, or form. So I would always be talking to them about it. And then I just eventually started to go. And I loved it because it was a place to unload every week. It was a place to unpack every week. And I know that people think, you know, well, you communicate for a living. You're on the radio. You do podcasts. You know, you write books. All of that is therapeutic, but it's not therapy. I think it's the difference mm -hmm. when you're sitting there talking to somebody, you know, about your deepest, darkest fears or insecurities or, you know, things that have historically given you anxiety, things that give you anxiety now and that that person is just helping you unpack it. Like, I look at it, like, I, I always talk about, like, you know, when you're doing spring cleaning, like, you go in your closet, your closet mad junky. Right, right. Like, it's clothes everywhere, shoes everywhere, and then you start, like, organizing things, you know, and you pack up the things you don't need, the things that don't serve you anymore, you, you give that away and the things you want to keep you organized in your closet and then you got room to bring in new stuff as well that's what that's what therapy does for me so it's it's interesting because i know even me like being a man being humble and you know showing that side of you that's like this is what i deal with at home behind closed doors like how has one being vulnerable made things better for you? How, how has vulnerability changed the way you live and, and the way you just live your life every day and, and wake up and, and move? That's a great question because you use the key word, which is vulnerability. Like, I feel like I've always been transparent. You know what I'm saying? I can tell you about anything that's happened in my life, but I could never tell you how it made me feel. You know what I'm saying? And I think that's what vulnerability does. It helps me to explain how I feel about things. And I think that for so long, they've always told us that, you know, you have to have it all together. You know what I'm saying? Like you have to know what's going on at all times or you have to keep positive vibes at all times. Guess what? Some days I wake up, I'm not feeling too positive. Some days I'm waking up and yes, I do got a lot of negative thoughts in my mind. I, I try to dismiss those, but I acknowledge them first. Yeah. You know, it's okay to not know. You know, it's okay for me to say, man, I don't know. It's okay for me to not know how I feel or why I feel that way. That's, that's perfectly fine for me to, 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 to not know. And I think that's what therapy has helped me to do is just help me to, to realize it's okay. I, I don't know everything. You know what I'm saying? Right. And, and if, if I don't know how I feel about something, express that, you know? And whatever I'm feeling, express that, you know? I think that men, man, we, we, we walk around so tough and so gangster and so hardcore because once again, if you grow up in a certain environment, you almost have to as a, as a su survival mechanism. Right. You know what I'm saying? And then like our, our egos are so fragile. You know why our egos are so fragile? Because we fronting. 
Because we're not as secure as we think we are. Because right. if we were really secure, you wouldn't care if a dude stepped on your shoes. You wouldn't care if a dude accidentally bumps you. That's what we call a germ, man. Because, like, the, the germ, you, we come from similar environments. Like, mm -hmm. that germ when you're in school, when, even when you're in a club, when everybody's supposed to be to enjoy themselves. Word up. That germ is like, yo, I'm with my boys, you with your boys. You're looking at each other, looking for a problem. Like, yeah. guys, that's, that's that germ that's been plaguing our people for years. One Even, group of hurt dudes versus another group of hurt dudes. Right. And all, they, all, all hurt people do is hurt people. So everybody's in pain. Everybody got this trauma they haven't dealt with. And all we end up doing is redistributing that pain to each other. Right. Instead of actually going to deal with it. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's why when I talk about fragile male egos, we hate rejection. You know, like you see these videos online, dudes beating up girls. You beating up a girl because the girl didn't want to give you the number. Right, right. Or a girl tell you she likes somebody else. Or you see dudes get in the fights or dudes shoot at other dudes just because the dude told me, oh, we don't want you around here. Get away, get out of here. That fragile male ego, like you yeah. hate rejection. You know what I mean? You hate rejection because, you know, you want love. That's really what we want. That's why I be like, when I meet my brothers, man, I be like, yo, peace, King, how are you? You know what I'm saying? Sometimes we got to tell each other, I love you, I value you, I appreciate you, because we're not getting that. The world constantly kicking our back in. Mm -hmm. So we got to be that for each other. You know what I'm saying? I think that if more of us knew that we were loved, we were valued, we were appreciated, then we would love, value, and appreciate ourselves. And once you love, value, and appreciate yourself, you gonna, I'm going to look at you and I'm going to see another brother who I know loves, values, and appreciates himself. And even if you don't, I will. I love, value, and appreciate you. So I would never harm you. Right. You know what I'm saying? For no reason. You know? So I'm not, like, once you start dealing with that trauma and that pain that you have, you stop redistributing it to everybody else. Right. So how do you deal with, because you found success, right? Um, being, being a kid from an old dirt road and living in a trailer in South Carolina. Most like, corner. Yes, sir. How, how do you deal with, because you, you kind of created something of your own, like something from nothing for yourself, for your family. Now, how do you turn around? Because it's, it's tough for you to do. Like, how do you turn around and pull people up? Because like, I think it's important for your audience to hear about, you know, how can you kind of redistribute your knowledge and just your access? Because you can't help everyone. I'm sure you have a million people reaching out to you. I've reached out to you, and we haven't connected until now. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, how do you turn around and, and pull up your audience in the best way possible? Well, you know, I've always considered radio personalities um, and DJs public servants. You know, I've always felt like we're here to serve the needs of the public. And we're here to serve the needs of the public through information. I feel like that's what our people really suffer from, a lack of information. You know, you wonder why so many black and brown people who want to be athletes, who want to be in the entertainment industry in some way, shape, or form, is because when they turn the TV on, or when they open these magazines, or when they're online, the people they see that look like them are usually in those spaces. So that's the information that they have. When you're in the hood, it's even worse, because you see that, but then right next to you, you might know the local drug dealer. You know what I'm saying? The dude that got on the fly, you know, St. Laurent sneakers, or the new Yeezys, you know, he sell dope. So you might want to do that just because this is what the person next to you is doing. That's why information and inspiration are the two greatest things that we can provide to our people as a culture. Information and inspiration. Because usually you're inspired by people that you want to be like. The reason you want to be like them is because they're doing something that you want to do. Or they have something that you want. So automatically, I'm like, damn, that dude got a, a rollie on. Oh, yo, that, like, man, I seen that dude in the magazine talking about some franchises he owns. Oh, you know, this dude's net worth is such and such. Oh, this guy's from the same place that I'm from, but look what he's, you know, accomplishing, you know? So, so therefore, that's the inspiration. Now, what do you need? The information. The information isn't to, you know, for you to mimic and copy because we're all originals, you know. I can tell you how I got to a certain position, how I got to a certain level, but you still got to walk your own path. All I'm doing is giving you the information because I've already provided you the inspiration. So when you ask me what I'm doing for my audience, that's what it is. It's information and it's inspiration because even if the information doesn't come from me, I can bring on 
voices on my various platforms that they can get a different level of information from or inspiration, you know? So I put, so my job as a public servant is to put those voices in positions to be heard so they can inform and inspire the culture. But even like, um, let's, let's go back, let's go dig into our community, our roots, because we're based in hip hop. Like mm -hmm. that's just natural. Let's, let's look at a Nipsey Hussle um, as an entrepreneur and the way he's risen above he didn't have to be in Crenshaw. He didn't have to be on Slauson Avenue giving back to his people. He could have been in Beverly Hills sitting up nice with his beautiful fiance and his kids, right? Now, what do you say to those young entrepreneurs who've created something for themselves and they don't have to look back? Do you think it's important for them to still be there and give back? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I don't think it's important for them to actually be there. I think that you can give back to the hood without necessarily going back because inspiration is inspiration. You know, I'm sure there's people in Monk's Corner, South Carolina who've never met me, who may never have even ever seen me in Monk's Corner, South Carolina, but I rep Monk's Corner everywhere that I go. Why? Because I didn't go to college. You know how you hear people you know, always bigging up their school, what, 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 where their alumni from. Right. I graduated from the School of Hard Knocks in Mount Corner, South Carolina. I didn't go to college, so I don't have that alumni to lean on. Or I don't have a fraternity to yeah. lean on. All I have is my experiences. My experiences were in Monk's Corner, South Carolina, Columbia, South Carolina. I represent South Carolina to the fullest. So I know I'm inspiring people from afar. You know, I have businesses in, in, in South Carolina that people may or may not know about. You know, that's the struggle I've been dealing with lately because of somebody like Nipsey. It's like, how much is too much to show people? Because my father would always tell me, when you open up a business, don't put your name on it. People will hate on you for no reason, right? So how much is too much to show people? Do I show people, hey, man, this is what I'm doing. You know, this is the real estate I'm investing in. You know, right. These are the franchises that I'm investing in. Do I show people that? Or is that something that just over time you let people know about later? And they're like, wow, I didn't know he was into all of that. Because right. that same, the inspiration can still come whether it's now or five years from now. It actually might be more inspiring five years from now when you're wondering why Charlemagne's net worth is $300, $400 million. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So. I don't necessarily think you have to, to go back because you can inspire, you know, from afar and you can give information from afar. Like somebody gonna watch this interview, somebody gonna read my book, somebody gonna hear me on the radio. So you can still provide information and inspire from afar. Is it great when you go back home? Yeah, I go home. I go home when I do my turkey drives every year. You know, um, I do a book bag drive every year. I don't really go home for that. I, like, I, I, I go home, they, you'll see me floating around South Carolina every now and then, but for the purpose of just hanging out, just to hang out, I don't, I don't see the reason, to be honest with you. Gotcha. So let's, let's talk a bit about work ethic. Um, what, what, does it, what did it take to be Charlemagne? What did it take to, as far as optimism, to see that the Breakfast Club was going to be what it is today? Well, yeah, I mean, you got to go back before the Breakfast Club. You got to go back to when I first started doing radio in Monk's Corner, I mean, in Charleston, South Carolina, you know, in 1998. I mean, even prior to that, like, I don't know if it was books, I don't know if it was music, but something always told me that I was going to transcend my circumstances. You know what I'm saying? Something always made me feel like I was bigger than the dirt road that I was raised on. You know, I remember being in elementary school, sitting in my grandmother's yard, and you know, back then the yard used to seem so big to me. It's not that big now, but back then it used to seem so big. So it used to seem like the world. It used to seem like this huge stage. Like I used to literally be pretending I was playing like guitar in front of like uh, uh, the world. I'm not talking about like just a, just a place. I'm talking about the whole earth. Like I could envision that in my mind like me standing outside of the planet earth and me talking to the world so it's just like i always knew that i was greater than the environment that i was in you know what i'm saying like i just wasn't 
going to be satisfied with, with, with what my father would call the three, you know, ends of your life, which is, you know, being in jail, dead, or broke sitting under the tree. Those were the three fatalities. Like my father used to always constantly beat in my head. So when I started seeing people actually end up in jail and people around me actually were actually getting killed and, you know, people that I used to look up to were actually broke sitting under the tree. Like that made me be like, oh, hell no. I got to really, really figure my life out. And so I started wanting to rap like most people in the hood, you mm -hmm. know, and, and just me, you know, being in the studio led me to meet a radio personality named Willie Will and Willie Will did radio and that's the type of person I am if I see like I said if I see somebody that inspires me they're doing something that I want to do you know what I mean are they they they, they have something I, I would like to have I'm like yo how did you acquire that and he told me he went down there and he got an internship and that's what I did I went down there and I got an internship and I remember being in that radio station doing overnights and I started like just studying some of the best radio personalities I would be online listening to Howard Stern clips. I'd be online listening to Wendy Williams clips, you know, Big Tigger, Angie Martinez, you know, Big Boy, you know, all, all of these people that I looked up to. And then, you know, had, you had Tom Joyner on in my market locally and you had uh, Doug Banks on. They were nationally syndicated, but they used to come on in Charleston. So all of these people were sparking something in me. And I remember saying to myself, if I'm going to be in this radio game, I want to be on that level. You know, I want to be a super jock. I don't want to be a, just another radio personality, you know, doing time and temperature and announcing what the new, you know, little baby song is. Like, I wanted to be a super jock. I wanted people to look at me the same way I was looking at those radio gods. Right. So that's where my mindset was. And so if you ever read The Secret and you know about the law of attraction, you know, whether I knew it or not, I was setting my vision board in my brain. But when I spoke it into existence and started saying, this is what I want to do, that's where all the optimism came from. So let's talk. Let's talk about some of the action that you took mm -hmm. early. You know, from from the point of being Willie Will. Like, what action did you take that put you in the right space to get lucky? Go. Well, I don't. I don't necessarily believe in luck. I believe in uh, taking action. I believe in executing. Willie Will told me to go down there and get an internship. I don't got to be in school or nothing. No. So I can just go down there and get an internship. Information. Drove down to the Z93 Jams, went in there, asked for an internship. They gave me the internship papers to fill out. Filled out my internship papers. Got the internship. You know, um, I remember the internship program I got and canceled because uh, it was something between one of the interns and you know, uh, the promotions director at the time. So I was like, damn, no more internship. But I kept calling the radio station every day, every day, every day. When are y'all going to bring the internship program back? When y'all going to bring it back? When y'all going to bring it back? Eventually, one day, uh, they answered the phone. And they said, hold on, I'm going to connect you to the promotions department. Connected me to the promotions department. It was a guy named Haji. And I'm still looking for Haji to this day. I don't know if Haji is dead. I don't know if Haji is alive. But I salute Haji because Haji is the reason. I'm, I, that was my first paying position at a radio station, period. Haji hired me to be in the promotions department. And that's how I got my foot in the door. So it was just like, yo, prior to that, I was selling crack, and I was in night school, and I was just hanging out in the hood all day. So I got me a job at a telemarketing place. I had a job at Demo in the Mall. And other than that, all my free time was spent at the radio station. Why was I at the radio station all the time? Because I was trying to learn every single thing about radio that I could. I learned how to you know, set up remotes through the promotions department. I learned how to you know, eventually run the boards in programming. I'd be sitting in with the salespeople. Like, I would just be there constantly all the time, running my mouth like I'm running my mouth now. And eventually my man Ron White was like, yo, you ever thought about being on the radio? Because when I would be up there with Willie Will, Willie Will would pull me on the air. You know, and I'd be on there talking with Willie Will so they would hear me. And Ron was like, yo, you should do your own shift. And I was like, all right, say no more. And so he put me on as a part-time radio personality on, on Sunday mornings. So that's how it all started. But if you ask me the steps that I took, I'll say execution. And the execution came from Willie Will telling me to go down there and get an internship. A lot of times we don't follow up. You know, everybody, we live in this area where you think you can just add water and boom. You right. know what I mean? Like none of us want to go through the process. That's why I always tell people, put the weed in the bag first. Because a lot of times we want to hit the block and get the money. But first, you got to 
you got to bag that weed up. You got to put right. the weed in the dime bags and the 20 bags and you go out there and you know what you're selling and you can't escape the process. So to me, that was just all part of the process. So that's what I did. I went down there and I executed. I got the internship and I just went through the process of being an intern. And that's the other thing too. Focus on the job you're there to do in that moment. I didn't have any other, I, didn't, I really wasn't going there thinking, okay, one day I'm going to be on the air. I really wasn't. That wasn't my mindset. I was just happy to be working at the radio station, even if I was just an intern. Because right. they let you drive the station vehicle, you know what I'm saying? You're driving the station vehicle and people see you in traffic, like, oh, C93. You know, like, that was, a, you felt good. Right. Especially coming from, I'm coming from, I'm from a dirt road in Mount Corner, South Carolina. I wasn't doing nothing else before that. Yeah. Nothing fly. So for me, that just felt good to, to do. So it's just like getting the information and executing. That's, so, the, that's the key. So we just talked about action. Let, let's talk about some of your failures. You were fired from four different radio stations. Four different radio four, stations. And you said it happened consecutively? No, it wasn't consecutively. I mean, listen, I've had millions of failures in life. Right. You know, going to jail in 11th grade. You know, my first ever charge was assaulting Braddy with intent to kill. You know what I'm saying? Me sitting in the backseat of the car with my homeboys, fake playing gangster. You know what I'm saying? I, I literally was fake playing gangster that day. I, I was in a neighborhood, and <laughs> we, was, we was kicking it with some, some girls, and the guys in the neighborhood came driving through, because this when I started going to a school called Scrapper. And some, some guys in the neighborhood came driving through, and I started faking like I was dope boy in Boys in the Hood. What's up? Y'all got a problem? <laughs> Holding my shirt up. I don't got no gun on me. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I'm, well, I got my shirt up. I always up. wonder why you sympathize with the artist that was playing. Because <laughs> you, you always, like, you take time and you look at them. You get off air, kind of. You're like, yo, why are you doing that? Because like, you know, I know where it leads. <laughs> right, right. So me pretending, yeah. you turn out to be what you pretend to be. Right. So my man really did have a pistol. So when I was in the back seat and he was in the front and we left to go to McDonald's. And when we was pulling, I think Burger King, one up. We pulling out. I think it was McDonald's. We pulling out. They pulled up on the side of us. They do getting they fake gangsta on. Until my man really pulled out a pistol. And they're like, oh. You know, and my dude, dude shot. And when he shot, it hit the fourth seat that nobody was sitting in. That's a mistake. Next day, they come and pulling me out of, out of high school. So I'm thinking, okay, this is like a regular trip to the principal office. I ended up spending the next 45 days in jail because my father was trying to teach me a lesson. You know what That's I'm saying? That's a heck of a lesson. That's a heck of a lesson. But that, that is... A huge mistake. So I'm saying all that to say when you get in the radio, coming from the extremes I come from, those firings were nothing. Now, the last firing really hurt. You know why I hurt? It's because I'm a father now. You know what I'm saying? So it's not about you anymore. It's not about me no more. Like, my wife had to uproot her whole life because we couldn't afford to live in Jersey anymore. So we had to both move back down to South Carolina. That's why I, I give it a whirl now because, like, she was... Let's, t let's talk about how her support has helped oh, you man. further you along. Oh, man, I don't deserve that. I don't deserve her, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you think, you're talking about a woman who, you know, when, when I got fired from Wendy's show and my fragile male ego, my pride, wouldn't allow me to go down to the unemployment office. Because I'm like, man, I've just been on, I've been Wendy Williams co-host and I just was on TV with Wendy and people know me. I can't be in the unemployment office in New York. They're going to clown me, yada, yada, yada. She was holding it down, but eventually it, that, it became too much and it became overwhelming. So we ended up getting behind on rent. She had to go stand in front of the courthouse and say why we shouldn't get evicted. You understand? Like, yeah, yeah. So it's just like that's, she been, we've been together 21 years. So that's a rider for real, for real, you know? And, and, but, but same way, you know, as brothers, we tell each other we love each other, we value each other, we appreciate each other. Having somebody that loves you, that values you, that appreciates you gives you that extra motivation to, to, to constantly keep it moving, you know? So even every time I would get fired, you know, you know Meth and Man say that's, that, that's why, that was our wedding song, All I Need, the remix, because when Meth say, yo, back when I was nothing, you made a brother feel like he was something. That's why I'm with you to this day, but no front. And even when the skies were gray, you would rub me on my back and say, baby, it'll, it'll be, be okay. okay. That's literally how it was. Every time I get fired, baby, you're going to be okay. You talented, you know what I'm saying? Like, don't even... Scratch it, don't even worry about it. Like when she was in college, she was writing projects, she was writing reports about me wow. and where she saw me going. Like she literally wrote a report and I'll never forget it because somebody said to her, oh man, he, he, he couldn't even make it in Atlanta. What are you talking, cause I used to always be talking about New York. Hey, he wouldn't even make it in Atlanta. Why, why what do you, what, what do you think makes him think he gonna 
go to New York and prosper. And this is when I was doing radio in Columbia with wow. no, with no uh, even route to figure out how to even break into New York radio. But, you know. So, yeah, both were crazy because you had a vision of creating something from nothing. Yep. And she supported your vision. She supported that vision. 100%. Wow. Yeah. So, let's, let's talk about, like, what was a major turning point for your career? Like, if you had to put your finger on one turning point, what, what would you say that is? Oh, that, that would definitely be in 2005 uh, when I met Wendy Williams and, you know, her soon-to-be ex-wife, Kelvin Hunter. <laughs> yeah, that would definitely be the major turning point because I was doing, I was doing radio in Columbia, South Carolina on Hot 103.9. And uh, they had just syndicated her to afternoons in Columbia on Hot 1039. So I used to come on after her. And um, I remember, I, I don't know, my homegirl Venom said she introduced me to them. Salute to Venom. I, I, maybe she did. I don't remember. I just remember them being at the radio station one day. And I remember automatically like, oh, shoot, I'm about to give Wendy these mixtapes. I got this parody song called Pink Tees. I think she would like, you know, I'm about to just bombard her, which I did, which was a terrible mistake. She was actually in the, in the and I, I get it now because I, I do radio. I do nationally syndicated radio. So she was in the studio with my man Daryl. Daryl was running the board. And I walked in and um, I, I tried to, I tried to, I said, Daryl, play this for me. And it was the Pink Tees. And I was trying to give her mixtapes. And Wendy said to me, Wendy was like, yo, man, take this mixtape shit to my fucking husband. I'm trying to do a show. I don't got time for this. Now, that was a moment where the fragile male ego should have kicked in, but it didn't. My mind said, well, where's your husband? And she was like, he's in the room over there. So that's what I did. I went into the next room and took that mixtape shit to her husband. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And I gave him the mixtapes, and that's how we connected. And then it was another time where um, the show, Wendy's show used to come on. Uh, they moved it from the afternoon to nights, 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. And... They kept repeating the same show over and over. And I remember just hitting Kev up like, yo, they keep repeating the same show over and over. You know, I don't know why. They just keep repeating the same show over and over. And he was like, word. He's like, I'm coming down there. So he came down there for that weekend and he heard it himself. You know, he heard, he heard it from himself and he was like, word. And then, you know, that weekend, same thing I always did when they came down before. Like I would give them bottles of champagne in the club, make sure they got weed, whatever they needed. And it was the same thing that weekend. Like, you know, Liquor, weed, whatever you need. We, we went to a couple clubs that weekend. So we had a rapport. And so when I ended up getting uh, demoted to one day a week, I got demoted to one day a week in Columbia, South Carolina. And the reason I got demoted to one day a week because it was this club in Columbia, South Carolina. And the manager of the club always had a reputation for putting things in girls' drinks and taking advantage of them. And that was always like the urban legend, but nobody could prove it. But then one day, this girl actually press charges against the dude and the dude got arrested. So I took his I took his mugshot and put it up on my MySpace page and I put the link to, you know, what he got arrested for. And I was like, yo, we gotta be very careful patronizing this club. Anybody from the community know we've always heard these things, but now this is proof. So maybe we shouldn't be going to this this facility. This club used to advertise on the radio station. So they ended up suing me. And like it was a, it was really a BS lawsuit because it's not like I made any of this up. Like the lawyer was saying, like I shouldn't I shouldn't have made it public, but it was already public information. It's not right. like I got on the radio and blasted the dude. I put it up on my MySpace page. So they ended up settling with this guy for two thousand dollars, and they cut me from six days a week to one day a week. And when Kev heard about this, Kev thought it was because I put him on to the fact that they were repeating Wendy's show over and over. And so he invited me to come up to a party here in New York. Once again, execution. Same way Willie Will told me to go down there and get the internship. Kev told me to come up for the party. So me and my dude, DJ Frosty, we got on a plane. We came to New York for the party. And in the club that night, Wendy was like, yo, you came. What's up? She was like, yo, I want you to come on my show tomorrow. Once again, information. Oh, you want me to come on your show tomorrow? Execution. All the next day. Kev, what's up? Yo. Wendy said she wanted me to come on our show. I told, I told him that night. All right, word, hit me tomorrow. Kev, when do you want me to come on our show? Kev, when do you want me to come on our show? Kev, when do you want me to come on our show? Kev was like, yo, where you at? I'm at such and such hotel. All right, get to the station. I'll be there by 3 o'clock. Boom. Get there by 3 o'clock. Sat in there until about 5. 5 o'clock, Wendy pulled me in. And I was there for 25 minutes. And that night, they was offering me 
the position as her co-host, you know? And they, Kev said to me, yo, we can't pay you, but we can give you a place to stay. And that's what they did. They gave me a place to stay for like, I think I might have stayed there for like a year and some change. Every, all know? opportunity doesn't have a check to it, right? I, I, listen, I say it all the time. A lot of people do not recognize opportunity unless there's a paycheck attached to it. Most of the time, real opportunity does not have a paycheck attached to it. I knew that for me to, to, to make my vision of, of prospering in New York come true and to go from market number 98 or 93 or whatever it was, the number one, that was the ticket. So that's what I did. Like I packed up my little cotton suitcase and, and moved up to, 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 to New York. And I was living in Jersey. And I, I worked with them for like a year, a year and some change for free. And then eventually WBLS put me on the payroll. But that was absolutely my biggest break because that led to everything else. You know what I'm saying? That led to people knowing me in the New York market. That led to when I got laid off from Wendy after those few years, you know, uh, a radio station in Philadelphia, 100.3 to beat, hiring me based off the work that I heard, they heard me do there on Wendy's show. And then for me working at 100.3 to beat, you know, Power 105.1 in New York hired me based off the fact like, yo, this dude was in Philly getting numbers in a PPM market, like this dude was making noise on the internet, this dude has a social media presence, we need that. And so, but if it wasn't for that break with Wendy, I, none of that would have happened. So after taking enough action and executing, um, you built yourself some celebrity, right? And as we all know, celebrity affords you a healthy deal flow. Mm -hmm. So you bringing in some deal flow and to the world, you've been doing amazing. You're on shows. You have your own production company. Um, I just overheard you talking about some real estate that you're getting into. Like, how do you manage and even not not only manage, but how do you vet that deal flow and and make it into something fruitful for yourself and for your future self? Well, I mean, at this point in my life, man, it's really just about leveraging that cachet you have in the culture. You know, because we're lying to ourselves if we're going to sit here and act like hip-hop doesn't run the world. You know, hip-hop is pop culture. And, you know, you look at it as me. I've been doing radio for 21 years. So six, seven years ago when they would say, oh, he's, he's the voice of hip-hop culture, you know, like uh, they, they would all make it sound like it's a niche thing. You know, like it's like it's a novelty thing. Like, oh, it's, that's hip-hop. Now... You say, oh, he's the voice of hip-hop culture. You're saying, oh, he's the voice of pop culture. You know, because you got to think, man. You think about all of these big pop, you know, superstars. I hate that word pop because the word pop is just short for popular. But you think of the Justin Timberlakes, the Justin Bieber's, or the Ed Sheeran's, or the Charlie Poo's, whoever it is. They grew up on hip-hop. Right, right. They grew up on hip-hop. So they watch The Breakfast Club probably more than they watch any of these other, other shows. You know what I mean? That's why they come to... The Breakfast Club. You know, that's why they want Charlemagne to show up to their functions. You know what I'm saying? Ed is actually a good friend of mine. You know what I mean? So it's just like now that carries a different level of cachet, but it also moves the needle. Now, when these corporations know you move the needle, that's a different ball game. You know, now we're talking about endorsement deals. Now we're talking about equity deals. You know, now we're talking about, you know, leveraging your voice and your place in the culture to really create some generational wealth, you know, not only for your family, but just to provide opportunities for other people, you know? Like, now you have these ears to even, like, these politicians, you know? Like, you see all these presidential candidates that's running through the Breakfast Club, you all these, all these mayors I know, you know, these, these governors I know. Like, these people are calling my phone. Like, we're having conversations, you know? We're talking about how we can do things like you know, opportunity funds. And, From Monk's you know, Corner, bro. Yeah, and, and, and mental wellness centers, you know, throughout, throughout the communities, you know what I mean? Like, so these people that have this pain and this trauma, they can go get some healing. Like, we're talking about doing real major things in, in poor and disenfranchised black communities throughout the country, you know what I mean? Because that black is gold, and, 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 and we have to start carrying ourselves in that way. They want this gold, you know, especially next year's a presidential election year you know what i mean they want that 13 percent of the population and you guys play a role in that yeah they want that 13 percent of the population to be out there voting for them you know and then and, and these these companies they want that 13 percent of the population to be supporting their products and pushing their products because they understand that we control the cool 
you know, we control the culture. That's why it's very important for me. Like, I, 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 it's not about what you say yes to, it's about what you say no to. For me, anything I get involved in, it can't be self-serving. It has to be something that a, a lot of people can benefit from. You know what I'm saying? A, a lot of people can learn from. A lot of people can be inspired by. Like, I don't want to... I don't want to do things just because it, it, it fattens my pockets. Like, that don't leave no legacy, you know? Like, that's what, like, you talk about Nipsey Hussle, man. Like, all Nipsey was doing, and I love Nipsey. Nipsey was moving the way black people used to move before integration. You know what I'm saying? He was building his own. That's what the Nation of Islam always tells us to do. That's why I wear Elijah Muhammad on my neck. Number one, because Message to the Black Man is, like, one of my favorite books ever. But also because Elijah Muhammad's whole mentality was, was, was do for self. And that's what Nipsey did. And, and, and you see, Nipsey wasn't a guy who had gold records. He didn't have platinum records. He didn't have top 10 songs on Billboard. You know what I'm saying? He wasn't all over television. You probably didn't even know who Nipsey Hussle was unless you was really, really into hip hop. Right. But when a man like that who invests so much into his people. He wasn't doing things that was self-serving. He was doing things like Vector 90, you know? You know, he was, he was, which is teaching people STEM, you know, in, in the hood. You know, you're doing things like buying the, the, the whole strip mall and, and, and trying to bring jobs to your community. You know, you're about to open up a hotel. Like, you're, you're, you're teaching your people how to create generational wealth. You're teaching your people about ownership. And entrepreneurship, you know what I'm saying? Salute to his, his business partner, David. But it's just like they were doing, they're moving the way black people used to move before integration. And you see his untimely demise, but you see the legacy he's left behind. You understand what I'm saying? You see how his life has inspired so many people. And, and, and now that information that he left behind is there for anybody to grab and take that baton and, and continue the marathon. So it's like, for me, that's, that's why I say I don't want to do things that are self-serving. I want to do things that, you know, impact other people in a major way. Because long after we're gone, all they're going to talk about is our works that we left behind. So a part of your work has broken barriers and, and knocked down doors. And you might not see it because you're in the trenches and you're still actively moving things forward for our culture, for our people, young even business owners, radio hosts, artists. Like you're knocking down doors. Um, you're, right now you're sitting in an interview of a black owned agency in partnership with Forbes magazine. Dope. That's last year. Dope. <laughs> that might not have been. Two years ago, impossible, right? So you're at the forefront of culture. You have, po you have politicians coming to you. Next year is an election year. How, how do you continue to move culture forward from here? By being honest, by being authentic, by not being afraid to grow, not being afraid to evolve. Like when I talk about you know, going to therapy and packing up things that don't serve me no more, you know, Charlemagne from seven years ago couldn't be in this position. You know, Charlemagne from seven years ago, you know, probably couldn't even handle being in this position. Because Charlemagne from seven years ago, his mind was somewhere else. You know, my mind was on just simply, you know, entertaining, you know. And I remember, tell, I remember telling my homeboy, Frosty, uh, when I got fired for the fourth time, and then I got the job with the Breakfast Club, I told Charlemagne, I mean, I told uh, Frosty, I said, yo, I'm gonna do something I've never done before. I'm gonna focus on me. I was like, I'm going to be super selfish and I'm going to focus on me. I need to get myself in position to when I scribe the pull the next people up, it's going to be way easier to do. And that's what I did. But I think that, you know, you can get, you can really get caught up, you know, when you're thinking about self because it's all about what can I do? 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 For me, for me, for me, for me, for me. Now is, you know, what can I do for us? You know, I'm back to where I've always felt I needed to be as a public servant, you know? But seven years ago, I was, you know, talking about sucking farts out of girls' butts and, <laughs> you know, sniffing J-Lo's seat. You know, it's a whole bunch of stupid, creepy shock jock shit. Yeah. Just because 
you get caught up in the whole Black Howard Stern stick. So it's like, well, which Howard are you, though? And why are people calling you the Black Howard Stern? Are they calling you the Black Howard Stern because of the Howard we have now, who's one of the best interviewers ever in the history of life? Or is it because of the old Howard Stern stick when he'd be doing baloney tossing games on girls' asses? You know what I'm saying? So it's just like, I, I got caught up in that. So I wasn't prepared for that then. And Hillary Clinton had no business coming to the Breakfast Club then. Bernie Sanders didn't have no business coming to the Breakfast Club then. Kamala Harris didn't have no business coming to the Breakfast Club then. But if you notice, you know, okay, you know what? That don't serve me no more. That's some BS. I got daughters now. I can't have my daughter seeing me wild like that. Like, my wife is on my ass. Like, that's, and that's corny now. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm in here making women uncomfortable. Like, that's not what I, what I want. You know what I'm saying? I want to be warm. I want to be inviting. I want people to feel like they can come here and just be their true, authentic self, you know? So it's just like you slowly start making a transition. Now, let me get back to what I know. Oh, okay. Uh, the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan wants to come on the show. That's my OG. Met him in 05. Great. You know, Dick Gregory, you know, Dr. Umar Johnson, Boyce Watkins, and, you know, the first politicians who, my homeboy, Bakari Sellers, you know, 2014, oh, Angela Rye now, you know, oh, Michael Eric Dyson. Like, we start bringing on all of these intellectuals and these thinkers and these people that have something to actually say to the community. And you're, you're, you're putting that medicine inside the candy of the 21 Savages and the Kodak Blacks and the Soldier Boys and everything else. And now you're creating a real hub for culture. Because the one thing about hip-hop is you can never put us in a box because I really am all those things. I go from reading Message to the Black Man to XXL Magazine. I go, reading, I go from reading Autobiography of Malcolm X to reading The Source Magazine. You know what I'm saying? I really do go from CNN to ESPN. So I can sit down and chop it up with the athletes. I can sit down and chop it up with the politicians. Of course I can sit down and chop it up with the hip-hop artists. Plus I'm not an old 40-year-old get-off-my-lawn type guy. I, I thank the South for that because I grew up on Project Fat. Mm-hmm. I grew up on Three Six Mafia. I grew up on Little John and, and, and Crime Mob, and I grew up on you know Ghetto Boys and you know Eight Ball and MJG, UGK, all of that <laughs> stuff that the hip hop heads would say wasn't real hip hop. I grew up on all of that. So now when I see the Twenty One Savages and the Kodak Blacks and the Little Babies and the Gunners, like that's just the stuff I grew up on. Right. They just dope ass. Down south artists to me, you know what I mean? So my, my palate is a little different. So I don't come off as the, the get off your lawn guy. I don't, I don't trip off what people's music is. I trip off more so their behavior. And that comes from being the old guy who's made a lot of mistakes. Right, right. You know what I'm saying? So I don't want you to make those same mistakes that's going to get you locked up. You know, uh, uh, 10 years from now, they'll be pulling something old that you said you know, and bringing it back to, to jeopardize something that you're, you're doing now. Like, we, we applaud Gucci Man, right? We applaud T.I. But do you remember those guys 15 years ago? Yeah, yeah, I remember. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember them yeah. 15 years ago? And like Gucci six years ago. Do you, you remember yeah. Gucci beating the girl up at a show, pushing another girl out of the car? Do you car, remember yeah. that? Like, we applaud them now. Gross. But think about where they were and... Think about what they had to go through to get there. You're talking about multiple prison sentences. So when I talk to these young dudes as a 40-year-old man, I'm talking to them from the perspective of you don't got to go through that to get to where it is you need to be. So, yes, I, I, just, take, I just take my position in the culture. You know, I, 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 I just, I, I'm very responsible for the things that I, I put out into the world. I'm, I'm intentional with it because... I do see that growth and that evolution just like everybody else does. I'd be a fool not to be aware of that, you know? Yeah. So in closing, um, what would you tell your 14-year-old self? Don't change nothing, kid. Honestly, I I believe in the space-time continuum. I've watched a lot of Back to the Future, you know? I can't even. I can't wait to see what the Avengers do with the Time Stone this weekend in game. Like I, I'm I believe sure. in all of that. So I, I feel like if I went back, and I said, you know what, I don't want this to happen. I don't want that to happen. I think I would have messed it up, right? It's, it's like a ping pong machine. Like you bump into certain things, but it gets your balls where it needs to be. You know, like I, I don't feel like I would tell my 14 year old self to change anything. I would, I would actually 
man, it's so crazy I'm about to say this because I literally heard Nipsey say this and I saw him in my head when he said it, but it's like, I would just say be more fearless. Being, and when I say more fearless, I mean fearless in the real way, not fearless in that BS criminal way, you know, that fake real. Because, you know, for a long time in our community, we've always, we've blurred the line between real and criminal. I ain't talking about that real. I'm talking about real is being fearless to be yourself, for real, for real. To not worry about what people are going to think because you showed up to school with glasses and a fanny pack. You know what I'm saying? To, to, to not be afraid to, you know, to, to care less about what people think just because, you know what, I'm not going to ride with y'all when y'all go shoot up this gas station. <laughs> or, or, or no, you know what, I'm not getting in the car because I know you're going to do a home invasion. Like, like I would tell my 14-year-old self to be fearless enough to really be myself, to never try to fit in with the quote-unquote in crowd, because that's what I did, you know? And a lot of that had to do with just trying to survive as well, but I, you know, started hanging with the wrong crowd. But I think that's, like, that's the society, the, the limitations that our society and culture put on us, too, mm -hmm. right? Like, even for me, when I was a kid, I used to think I had to get fly every day, right. like, or I didn't want to go to school. I felt uncomfortable, and that's back to the... The, the manhood stuff that we were talking fragile about. Fragile ego, yeah, yeah, That's yeah, fragile. Yeah. It, it doesn't get any more fragile than that. Like, and just want to be accepted. Just want to be accepted. Yeah. You know? That's yeah. why I said you got to tell your brothers you love them, you value them, and you appreciate them. But you I already think, accepted. We black men. But we do. We plant, that, we plant that seed into our youth early, too. Like, I'm sure, like, when you're at a cookout or a Thanksgiving, you're telling that young kid, oh, he's going to be a superstar NBA or a basketball player. Yeah, 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 he's yeah. going to get all the girls as opposed to saying he's going to marry a good woman, right? Like, yeah. that's something that we're planting in early. So, you know, for me, I'm trying to get so down to basics and when it comes to knowledge and how we teaching these young kids because as we get older, it's like right away, all right, cool. Now I'm this person that my family pushed me to be. I started off as a basketball player, and that's where I'm shooting out to be. But now, you know, I want to, I need to start a business, or I need to get a job. So who can I look to? LeBron James? Yeah, and don't even, listen, I talked to my daughter about ownership. You know what I'm saying? My daughter just started a slime company. Wow. You know what I'm saying? She, I gave her the little front money for her to go buy the ingredients to make her own slime. She in school selling slime, wow. $7 a pop, you know? <laughs> but I'm teaching her about ownership early. When I, when I close on a new property, I talk to her about this commercial real estate. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I have these conversations with her. When I go home and I'm looking over these franchises I'm about to invest in, I let her see that because it puts her mind in a different place than we were growing up. They taught us to work. They taught us to get a job, which is great. You know, you, you got to be an employee. It got to start somewhere. But you should always have at least one thing that you own to where you got passive income coming in. And it's yours. You know what I'm saying? Like, I do it all. I, 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 I work over here with iHeart, but then I got three, four companies that I own. And that's what you should be doing, you know? So, like, I let her see all of that because I know that that's planting different seeds in her mind. All right. Wow, man. Thanks for coming. This was, this was amazing. Yes, sir. I'm sure the audience could take a, a bunch from you. Absolutely. My brother. Thank you. Love. Bro.